Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishopbriggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Monday the 6th of September 2021, from the comment section... Be braced for a fight, but gender recognition reforms will happen. By Stephen Payton, columnist. For those following the debate around trans lives in Scotland, three very interesting things happened last Thursday. A rally, an announcement and the long-awaited publication of Scotland's second consultation on deforming the Gender Recognition Act. Each tells a part of a broader story. Firstly, the consultation results. There's no denying that the announcement of a second consultation on GRA reform caused serious unease in Scotland's LGBT plus community. At that time, the process of moving towards a system of self-declaration had already been so painfully drawn out that it was an act of political weakness to kick the issue into the future in the face of a small but loud minority in opposition to it particularly given that the first consultation had shown a significant majority of Scots back to proposed changes. Yet, in the face of a press so hostile to trans equality that not so long ago, The Economist tweeted the question, should transgender people be sterilised before they're recognised? It later apologised, saying it's been wrong to use the line out of its context. The second consultation has found a majority of organisations are still in favour of reform. And, while human rights issues should never come with the caveat that they are more popular than morally necessary, it will at least help to dispel the willful delusion that opposition to trans liberation is anything more than a minority position within Scotland. Secondly, the announcement. Like the proverbial butterfly awaiting the time to pass its coloured splendour into the world, GRA reform is back in the cards, but it won't come without a struggle. Reforming the Act remains such a minuscule step towards trans liberation as to be wholly irrelevant to the vast majority of Scots. A change to the process by which transgender people can update their legal documents and nothing more. Yet, Having become such a linchpin for middle-class Scotland's backlash against equalities legislation, it has, in turn, taken on more cultural significance than the simple bureaucracy has any right to. In passing, it will be the downfall of the many myths and unfounded warnings against transgender people that have come to make up the bulwark of so-called gender-critical discourse, placing Scotland alongside its many European neighbours which have already introduced a process of gender self-declaration without issue. And, finally, the rally outside the Scottish Parliament. When people began organising against GRA reform, it was hard to breathe with all the dust being brushed off the old homophobic arguments of the 1980s. 
And while those rehashed arguments may have been maintained their polished gleam in the past few years, the similarities between today's opposition to trans equality and the backward reactionary politics of the past are becoming increasingly clear. The rally outside the Scottish Parliament was a fascinating mix of gender-critical activists alongside the anti-LGBT Scottish Family Party and various Conservative MSPs who came out to show their support. Most concerningly, however, a call also appears to go out on the Telegram channel for members of the neo-Nazi group Patriotic Alternative to join the rally afternoon. A quick glance at a snapshot of the gathering and I suspect you would struggle to place what year this had taken place and not just because several attendees had come cosplaying as suffragettes. Judging from images shared online, it looked like an outright parade of the greatest hits of homophobia. Dire warnings for the future of our children alongside calls for Nicholas Sturgeon to leave our kids alone. I wouldn't want to play the guilt by association game, but I do wonder at what point gender critical activists will look around and wonder if they have perhaps planted themselves on the wrong side of history. Perhaps when you find yourself allied with the party that introduced the rape clause, whose austerity policies and benefit cuts disproportionately hurt women, it is maybe not the case that you're standing up for women at all. When I started writing this column, I had intended for it to serve as a warning of sorts, a reminder that it said the darkest hour comes just before the dawn. It came off the back of news that actor David Paisley an outspoken gay rights activist and supporter of trans rights, would be leaving Scotland after receiving threats from a man who also claimed to know his home address. A co-founder of the Women's Place organisation responded to the news by tweeting mocked up at David Paisley threat level meter, suggesting it was time to leave the country when women won't wish, rather than acknowledge the impact of the harmful rhetoric this has come to define any discussion around trans equality. This, alongside the return of slogans painfully used against Scotland's LGBT plus community in the past, led me to despair, but instead I wanted to leave on a note of hope. Hard fast, the end of this chapter is in sight. It will take pressure on the Scottish Government to follow through. It will take a community coming together, still, to look after one another. It will take strength and humour and resilience, and then it will pass, and with it, these slogans and placards will find themselves once again in the dustbin of history. And that was an opinion piece by Stephen Payton. Recorded from the National on the 7th of September 2021, from the Culture section, Scotland's relationship with climate crisis probed in timely film premiere by Nansport. An exploration of Scotland's complex relationship with the worldwide climate crisis will open a leading environmental film festival next month. Living Proof, A Climate Story is directed by Emily Munro and uses archive footage to explore the roots of the climate crisis in a portrayal of a country shaped by demands for energy and economic growth. Featuring corporate voices, news reporters, protesters and the general public, the footage spans the geography of Scotland, taking in the Central Belt, the rural, rural South, the Highlands and the North Sea, and looks at the most treasured, most contested and most exploited parts of the country. 
Living Proof is part found footage mashup and part archive collage, with the soundtrack comprising contemporary Scottish artists Louise Connell, Brown Bear and Post Cole Prom Queen, along with composers Ian White, Frank Spedding, John Maxwell Geddes and David McNiven. It will tour Scottish cinemas following its Take One Action world premiere and is one of more than 20 international UK and Scottish film premieres, complemented by discussions and exclusive digital content in Glasgow, Edinburgh and online from September 22nd to 26th. In-person festival editions will take place in Aberdeen and Inverness in late October. Other festival highlights include the Scottish premiere of Writing with Fire, the story of India's only news agency run by Dalit women surviving and thriving in a media landscape run exclusively by men and redefining what it means to be powerful. Take One Action 2021 will close with the Scottish premiere of The New Corporation, Joel Bakken and Jennifer Abbott's unfortunately necessary sequel to their seminal 2003 documentary The Corporation investigates how the corporate takeover of society is being justified by the sly rebranding of corporations as socially conscious entities. From gatherings of corporate elites in Davos to climate change, spiralling inequality, the rise of ultra-right leaders, COVID-19 and racial injustice, the film looks at corporations' devastating power. Countering this is a groundswell of resistance worldwide as people take to the streets in pursuit of justice and the planet's future. Tamara Weiss-Dritham, Executive Director of Take One Action, pointed out that the festival was taking place as Scotland prepares for the UN Climate Conference COP26. COP26 in November represents such a crucial moment for our planet's future and our programme offers a much-needed opportunity to pause and reflect and to question just how we've arrived at the topsy-turvy reality we call our own, she said. To truly build back better, we need to both engage with and dream up different realities. Our excitingly diverse selection of documentaries and the audience conversations we nurture can inspire our way into a new story. One that centres on care, community, equity, accountability and sustainability. The festival is supported by Screen Scotland. Sambrook Scott, Head of Audience Development, said, We're very excited to support the return of Take One Action as it showcases powerful cinema from Scotland and around the world, exploring the issues that are shaping our world. By pairing great films with positive action that enables the audience to explore and begin to address key challenges facing our collective future, Take One Action offers a unique festival experience. By kicking off with Living Proof, a climate story, a timely and necessary portrait created by Dr Emily Munro from the National Library of Scotland, against the backdrop of Scotland hosting COP26. Take One Action once again proves to be a vital, engaging and empowering festival. All films are available on a pay-what-you-can basis, whether in-person or online across all venues. All films are available to watch online, excluding Living Proof. Tickets to all screenings are on sale now at www.takeoneaction.org.uk. That article was by Nan Sport. From the National, Monday the 6th of September 2021, from the comment section, Citizens, not State, would own Scotland's National Pension Fund, by Jim Osborne, Scottish Banking and Finance Group. In last week's article, the Scottish Banking and Finance Group, 
SBFG, returned to the subject of pensions and the relationship between workplace and private pensions to the state pension. We make no apology for our regular focus on pension funds. They are an unrecognised and powerful component of our financial system and have been operating under the radar for too long. It is time we all started discussing them, the role in the economy and how we need to reform how they work. Since the introduction of auto-enrolment positions in 2008, the majority of workers in Scotland and the rest of the UK now have savings in some form of pension fund. While this has resulted in more people having another pension in addition to the state pension, it has sucked enormous amounts of money into the financial industry, where it has benefited the pay and bonuses of a variety of players in financial markets and increased the volume of funds being used for financial speculation. Instead of funds being used to invest in productive activity, what we have seen is more money ending up inflating a huge and unsustainable financial bubble. Workplace and private funds are now worth £2.6 trillion. If we were to start again from scratch, it is likely we would not design a pension system so reliant on citizens' savings. But we are where we are, and £2.6 trillion of citizens' savings cannot be ignored, abolished or confiscated. If we want to provide a decent pension for all, for all then we need to level up by ensuring each citizen can join a single national pension scheme designed to provide a publicly agreed level of earnings related pension for every citizen when they retire. The function of the state would be to make up any shortfall that individuals may suffer because, for one reason or another, they have not been able to contribute to the National Fund for long enough to get the maximum benefit. The role of the state would also be to act as the guarantor of the scheme in the unlikely event that there was a short-term cash flow problem. A Scottish National Fund will take some time to be established and it is likely that several phases of development will be necessary. The start point may be to consolidate all the local government funds, LGPS, into one public sector fund. At present, this would have assets worth about £55 billion and would be about 25% of Scottish citizens' pension fund assets. The current LGPS funds are themselves the product of early amalgamation of smaller funds, so this process has been done successfully before. Stage 2 could bring the assets of other large funds, such as Scottish University funds, part of the UK-wide anniversary superannuation scheme, USS. During these initial stages, the rules governing how pension benefits are calculated would need to be harmonised. Although the LGPS funds currently share a common formula for determining benefits, the level of pension benefits compared to earnings is a matter for public debate, but it is important that members of funds being transferred into a national fund suffer no detriment, so a principle of equivalence will be important when designing the rules. Once this initial scheme has been formed and earnings-related pensions are created, there will be a strong incentive for members of other pension, active pension schemes to transfer them in voluntarily. Any remaining defined benefit schemes offered by employers may wish to transfer in 
because doing so will relieve employers of the responsibility for funding deficits. Employees in defined contribution schemes would also want to seek to transfer their pension savings into the National Fund in order to gain benefit of a pension linked to their pre-retirement savings rather than one depending on how lucky they are with their personal investments. Once the National Fund has achieved a critical mass, it will exert a gravitational pull on workplace and private pension schemes, given that it offers an earnings-related pension, and the fund is also guaranteed by a Scottish state, which is its own currency and central bank. The assets of this National Fund would not belong to the state, it will be made up of the savings of citizens, and so the assets will be owned collectively by all citizens once formation of the fund is fully completed. The investments made by the fund would then be derived from citizen savings, and the returns on those investments would flow back to the fund and help to provide the revenues needed to pay pension benefits. Everyone will contribute, and everyone will benefit. The National Pension Fund would be a very large mutual financial institution. In this respect, it would differ from the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Oil Fund, which is state-owned. And that was a comments piece by Scottish Banking and Financial Group's Jim Osborne. This article is from The National. Date 6 September 2021 from the Culture section. Turn the Tables graduate placed thousands at Riverside Festival by Richard Walker. As a crowd of 6,500 gathered by the banks of the Clyde yesterday, a young DJ who has only recently escaped a life of homelessness was preparing for one of the most exciting days of her life. Sam, a recent graduate of the Homelessness DJ project organised by the Scottish social enterprise Turn the Tables, was playing her first gig at the third and final day of the Riverside Festival, Scotland's premier celebration of electronic music. The festival brought together an impressive array of the world's most cutting-edge DJs, including Jamie XX, Disclosure, Emily Lenz and Scream, at the first major musical event since the country emerged from the Covid restrictions, which shut down most cultural events. The Homelessness DJ project gives participants the opportunity to learn to mix and perform their own DJ sets, while building mental health resilience through what it describes as a holistic approach to well-being. Sam, who prefers not to reveal her second name, had been homeless, but was staying in a hostel when she learned of the project and could hardly believe she was playing her first ever set at an event which sold 20,000 tickets over the three days of the weekend. She said, it feels amazing, surreal, but amazing. Turn the Tables project has given me so much confidence and motivation to get through some hard times, but I'm very excited about the future. Turn the Tables is founded on providing support for people who are affected by homelessness across Scotland. This includes asylum seekers, refugees and at-risk youth. Robbie Tolson, founder of Turn the Tables, said, 
This partnership gives Turn the Tables a platform and outlet for our DJs to perform at the highest level. It gives new participants a goal to work towards while challenging public perceptions and stigma at one of Europe's leading electronic music festivals. Turn the Tables has already had support from artists and organisations from across Glasgow's electronic music scene, including the international, internationally revered Groove City Radio and the Sub Club. The concept behind Turn the Tables was sparked when Tolson, a Heriot Watt town planning and property development graduate from Stirling, signed up to volunteer at Edinburgh's Social Bite Village Homelessness Support Community in 2018. After that, he successfully set up various DJ workshops and gigging opportunities for people living in hostels or facing homelessness. It provided them with an invaluable opportunity to learn to mix, operate professional sound and light equipment, and reconnect with the music they love while socialising in a safe environment. Euphoria was the order of the day at the Riverside as the electronic beats welcomed revellers back to the glories of peak dance. Turn the Tables ambassador and internationally renowned DJ, producer, vocalist and label boss Nightwave also played at the event, as did co-curators of the festival Slam, who debuted their brand new hybrid live concept to an ecstatic crowd. This was based around a mixture of technology and DJ skills, combining the records from other artists that Slam loved to play with a healthy slice of the duo's own incendiary material. That article was by Richard Walker. From the National, Monday the 6th of September 2021, from the comment section, has Jeremy Kyle learned anything ahead of his comeback? By Kirsty Strickland, columnist. During an interview to promote his new weekday show on talk radio, Jeremy Kyle complained he has been cancelled. It's been more than two years since the programme that turned Kyle into a household name was last aired. The Jeremy Kell Show's final episode was shown in the morning after 63-year-old Steve Diamond was found dead in his home. Diamond had appeared on the show to prove he wasn't cheating on his fiancée. He agreed to take a lie detector test, the results of which are notoriously unreliable, and failed. The episode featuring Diamond was never broadcast, but at the time it was reported that he was jeered at by the audience and Jeremy Kell got in his face and branded him a failure after the lie detector results were revealed. Diamond was said to be so upset that he fell to his knees that even at the point of collapsing, was still being heckled by the audience. A week after that appearance, Diamond died in an apparent suicide. The show was taken off air and ultimately cancelled. Good riddance. And now Kyle is back and claiming he has suffered the same fate. I have been cancelled. In this world, it seems now that unless you follow a certain path, you are labelled, he said. In a separate interview with The Sun, he said he had felt hunted and scapegoated after his show was scrapped. He also described Diamond's death as a tragedy. There isn't a person in the world 
who's capable of self-reflection that doesn't regret how they've treated somebody in the past? I know I do. With the benefit of hindsight and experience, there are columns I wish I hadn't written and wouldn't write today, where it edged beyond opinion and into cruelty. What makes Jeremy Kyle's comeback interview so distasteful is not that he has taken another job. He is just entitled to anybody else to work and earn a living. It's the apparent lack of self-awareness about the circumstances around what he describes as being cancelled that is galling. It's a word, much like woke, which now seems to cover everything and anything that those who deploy it don't like. Culture wars are easy fodder for columnists and commentators. They allow for brash headlines and furious clicks. Things are either good or bad, political correctness going mad or common sense consequences. Whoever wanted can now be rebranded into a cancellation by prominent figures who see no irony in doing a media tour to complain about being silenced. It's that lack of nuance that helped make the Jeremy Kill show so successful. Long before guests walked on stage, the production crew had already decided who was a saint and who was a sinner. And anybody who watched the show will know that the balance of saint to sinner was always heavily weighted in favour of the latter. It was a TV show centred on real life stories of human misery and suffering and it was hugely profitable for both Kyle and ITV. It was exploitative and cruel. The fact that it was so popular for so long is a sad indictment on us as a society. Stories of family breakdown, addiction and mental health issues were mined and then presented to a braying audience. After filming, executives would give the programme a rating from A to D. One former employee explained, An A show would be a high conflict show not physical, but something where it goes off. There's lots of storming around the studio, lots of heightened emotions, lots of shouting, lots of what they are co- they called really good entrances. When they come on and they're immediately kicking off, nine times out of ten you're going to get an A show for that. In one of the promotional interviews for his new show, Kyle said that talk radio and its presenters wouldn't be doing this unless there were people out there watching and listening to this you actually agree. If his interviews in recent days are anything to go by, we know what to expect from his new show. It's the same shtick that many of his colleagues at the station have already made their own. That you can't see anything anymore but here I am seeing it to an audience of thousands, gang. He has a new job and good luck to him. But he didn't lose his old one because he was a fearless truth teller or because he said what is apparently unseeable. He lost it because the programme he, that he hosted preyed on people during their lowest moments and a man died as a result. Maybe Jeremy Kell thinks that enough time has passed between the show's cancellation and his big comeback that he can rewrite history and nobody will notice. Or, perhaps, he has watched how the thirst for confrontation has spread from reality TV to news and is sure he has found a receptive new audience. And that column was by Kirsty Strickland. From a national, Tuesday the 7th of September 2021, from the sports section, Solheim Cup, 
Catriona Matthew leads Europe to stunning victory. This article is by Angus Cochran. Catriona Matthew has masterminded a stunning Solheim Cup victory for Europe on US soil. In a thrilling golfing contest in Toledo, the Scottish captain saw her side secure a shock victory in America for just the second time ever. Ireland's Leona Maguire played a starring role in her Solheim Cup debut, with her singles victory over Jennifer Kupcho at Inverness Club, leaving her with 4.5 points from 5 matches, a record for a rookie on either side. It also provided the ideal springboard for a hard-fought 15-13 success. European captain Matthew, who also led the team to victory at Glen Eagles in 2019, paid tribute to her players, adding, Just an amazing team, actually. They came out here and performed. I'm kind of lost for words, actually, at the moment. Matthew secured the winning point in Europe's previous win in America in 2013, but added, I think it's even sweeter as a captain, actually. It's certainly more nerve-wracking watching. It's all down to the team, really. It's if they play well, so hats off to them. Wins for Madeleine Sagstrom and Celine Bautier edged Europe closer to their target, along with half points from Anna Nordquist and Nana Kortz-Madsen, before victories for world number one Nelly Korda, Brittany Altomare and Megan Kang kept the contest alive. It failed to finish rookie Matilda Kasterin to make a nerveless up and down from a bunker on the 18th to beat Lizette Salas and make sure the trophy would return to across the Atlantic, with Emily Pedersen then guaranteeing half a point from the bottom match to ensure outright victory. Her opponent Daniel King won the 16th and 17th and even birdied the last, but Peterson followed her to complete the victory in fitting fashion. It was a bit of a fight because after 15 I knew we'd won and I just wanted to go celebrate with everyone so I really had just to collect myself, Peterson said, but it felt really good to hold that last putt. Maguire eagled the second and birdied the fourth, sixth and seventh to take command of her match against fellow unbeaten rookie Kupcher and duly completed a comprehensive win. The 26-year-old said, The goal was to get my point, that's all I can do. I've given it my absolute all this week. I couldn't have given any more. I couldn't have asked for a better week. Jen is a world-class player. We've done battle many times in college. This wasn't the first, and it will definitely not be the last. I knew I was going to have to play some really good golf to beat her today. Got off to a great start, that eagle and two really sort of set me up and I hold some really nice putts and re- just really kept my foot down all day. Sagstrom put another point on the board for Europe with a 3-2 victory over Ali Ewing, a highly welcome win from a controversial incident involving the pair on Saturday. Ewing was parting quarter when the latter's eagle putt on the 13th hole narrowly feared to drop with Saxon quickly picking up the ball and conceding the birdie. The Swede was deemed to have acted too quickly, as the ball was adjudged to be hanging over the hole, with Corda credited with the eagle, and the American pair going on to win the match on the 18th. It's been a great week, Sagstrom said. The team has obviously done amazing. I haven't really contributed until today. I was saying on the range this morning, hold on a second, I need to be myself. I need to be myself out there.
I can't play somebody else's game. I can't be somebody else's character. I need to be myself. And I really found that today. I grinded hard. Ali put up a really good fight. So we had a really solid game going. And I'm really proud of myself. United States captain Pat Horst was left to rue, losing the opening session by three points, adding, I think we got behind the eight ball in the very first foursomes. It's still going to be pretty close, but it's not good enough. I was hoping to see a lot of red in the beginning, today, just to kind of put it up on the board for everyone to see, but it is what it is. They played hard, they played with heart, and that's what we were asking for. And that article is by Angus Cochran. Recorded from the National on the 8th of September 2021. From the Culture section. Robert Piston cancels trip to Scotland after testing positive for COVID-19. By Angus Cochran. Robert Piston has been forced to cancel a trip to Scotland after testing positive for COVID-19. The journalist and presenter had been scheduled to attend the New Enlightenment Summit in Bremer, Aberdeenshire. He says he contracted the disease despite having both jags. The ITV host tweeted, I was supposed to be at New Enlightenment Summit in Braemar, but depressingly have tested positive for COVID. Yes, I'm double vaxxed. Robert Peston, at Peston, September 6, 2021. The New Enlightenment Summit is a science conference which brings together academics, economists and business leaders. The event comes as Scotland grapples with a surge in COVID cases. On Sunday, the government announced another 6,368 cases were recorded in the previous 24 hours. No new deaths were reported, though registrar's offices are usually closed at weekends. A total of 48,033 tests were carried out, of which 14.2% were positive. There were 719 people in hospital with recently confirmed COVID-19 and 61 in intensive care. A total of 4,121,962 people have received the first dose of a coronavirus vaccine and 3,726,769 have received their second dose. That article was by Angus Corwin. From The National, Tuesday the 7th of September 2021, from the news section, BBC, Laura Kunzberg accused of shameful bias in NI report. By Xander Richards, multimedia journalist. The BBC's political editor, Laura Koonsberg, has been accused of acting as an unofficial spokesperson for Boris Johnson's government after her report on the Tories' plan to hike national insurance contributions. Koonsberg was speaking on the Sunday's edition of the BBC's Politics Live when she claimed the plan to raise NI payments, contravening a major manifesto pledge, was evidence that the Prime Minister does actually intend to keep his promise to fix English social care. She said the Tory leader would break one promise in order to keep the other. The Conservatives' 2019 manifesto promised not to raise the rates of income tax, national insurance or VAT. It said this was a guarantee that will protect the incomes of hard-working families. The party also promised to find a long-term solution for social care, adding The prerequisite of any solution will be a guarantee that no one needing care has to sell their home to pay for it. In her report on the issue, Koonsberg said 
I have heard a couple of interesting things this morning. The government might actually push to have a vote on this new levy that's to go towards health costs and the cost of social care. Perhaps to try to get some of those grumpy bank pensions on board and to show to the country, which Boris Johnson is very keen to do, whatever you think of him, that this was a difficult problem and he does actually intend to keep his promise to fix it, however controversial and however much unhappiness there's going to be about these proposed reforms. Despite saying that the government might actually push to have a vote in this new levy, Kunzberg had previously reported that Parliament would, of course, have to have a vote on increasing national insurance. Furthermore, the grumpy backbenchers who are opposed to the Tory government plans to raise taxes include at least one member of the Cabinet. Kunzberg then reported on the perceived unfairness of an NI rise as it will hit low-paid people who are in work while pensioners or others with high levels of accrued wealth will pay nothing. Kunzberg said the Tories would be rip up the triple lock meant to protect pensions Another direct breach of commitments in the Tories' 2019 manifesto. The BBC's political editor claimed that breaking two manifesto pledges would be presented as fairer than a national insurance rise would be in its own. New Statesman contributor Alex Andrew shared a clip of the report on Twitter saying that Kunzberg had been used had used some interesting framing. Andrew went on People saying government shouldn't break its manifesto pledges or that national insurance is an unfair, regressive way to pay for social care are grumpy. While Johnson, whatever you think of him, is determined to take on hard issues, whatever the political cost, others agreed with the assessment, with national contributor Jerry Hassan writing, This is the BBC's Laura Kunzberg acting as an unofficial spokesperson and interpreter for Boris Johnson's government. A line she does seem happy to continually cross over into. Nick Tolhurst added, BBC journalist BBC Laura Kay now reframing Boris Johnson breaking a manifesto commitment as keeping a promise. I don't know what to say at this point. It's beyond satire. Other replies accused the BBC's political editor of having given up pretending to be an independent journalist of presenting a party political broke broadcast on behalf of the Conservative Party and of shameful bias. The BBC has been approached for comment and that article is by Xander Richards. Recorded from the National on the 9th of September 2021 from the Culture section. Live music reminded me it's not just your economy that needs protecting in crisis by Richard Walker. Each of us will have felt the loss of things we loved during a lockdown, which, at some points, felt would go on forever. For me, it was live music. Recordings are all very well, but for me, music is a primarily a communal experience, best enjoyed in a packed room field with people sharing their enjoyment. I don't think I'm alone. Since lockdown restrictions eased, I've noticed that music is playing a big role in bringing people back together in a way as reminding us all of the power it has to heal and inspire. I first noticed it in an outdoor bar during the Edinburgh Festival when a number of solo performers with only an acoustic guitar for accompaniment sparked mass sing-alongs from an audience who had only recently emerged from isolation to join together in a celebration of the popular song. 
there was a poignancy in what felt like a communal realisation that joining together is part of what makes us human and cutting ourselves off from each other, even when, when essential for our health, as it undoubtedly was when COVID began spreading through our communities, has a high price tag attached. Joining in with an old Oasis songs isn't exactly an intellectual exercise, but watching the smile spread around the bar after such a long period of apartness made them almost profound. These feelings have only increased as more and more events welcome back audiences. I spent much of last weekend at Prestwick, which was hosting the return of the local music festival Prestfest after Covid forced its cancellation last year. Almost every bar in town had a band playing and most were packed with customers, who were clearly overjoyed to be out socialising, dancing and singing again. In towns all over Scotland, modern life had put the local sense of community under threat. So many of us had started to define ourselves by where we worked rather than where we lived. We travelled to big city offices and when we returned home, we were too knackered to go out for the night or to socialise. During lockdown, we began to connect again with friends and neighbours in the same town. Now that lockdown has eased, we're more aware of what's going on in our own backyards. Before lockdown, many of Scotland's towns looked abandoned and run down. Shops were closing and in many cases, main streets lacked the vision to offer an alternative to shopping to attract visitors. Now cities are less attractive places to live. Shops are closing there too, but the experience of lockdown, cooped up with children in flats without gardens, has encouraged many to consider alternatives. House prices are rising in rejuvenated towns, encouraged by homeworking, which makes commuting unnecessary. Local events like Prestfest are encouraging a reborn sense of community, with music serving as the glue which binds people together. In one bar, the crowd was bellowing out Johnny Cash, another country and pop hits. In another, an enthusiastic band had hit, had the audience dancing until midnight with Meatloaf, ACDC, ABBA and Erasure. It was a fantastic night which encouraged a sense of well-being and togetherness after months which have proved tough going for many of us. The threat of COVID has not, of course, entirely disappeared. A further 5,810 cases were reported yesterday, after a run of even higher totals. There were 883 people in hospital with recently confirmed COVID, 82 of them in intensive care. So COVID hasn't been defeated yet. The threat of a circuit-breaking lockdown persists particularly if the return of university students increases the number of cases. But there is a sense of the worst being over and attentions are focusing on the economic recovery. Those of us who support independence are looking forward to the prospect of a second referendum and the opportunity to put control over that recovery into the hands of a government which we elect ourselves. But let's not overlook the effects of lockdown on our mental health. We have been deprived of the company of our friends, families and work colleagues. We've been switching on our computers and staring into the void. Young people in particular have lost out on so many important rites of passage. Instead of hanging out with their mates, they've been forced to spend almost every waking minute with those who take care of them. There's a limit to how much fun that can be. There was an almost palpable sense of euphoria when one of the first major music festivals since the pandemic struck took place outside the Transport Museum on the banks of the River Clyde last weekend. The Riverside Festival is always a joyful experience, but this year's event reached new levels. The rain failed to dampen spirits as DJ after DJ, including Glasgow Pioneer Slam, pushed the dancers to ever greater heights of intensity. Everywhere you looked, people were having the time of their lives. 
Just months ago, it was hard to imagine ever being part of something so intoxicating ever again. It was almost as if raves had been a figment of the imagination, a glimpse of a world that had slipped from view. The Riverside Festival was a monumental rebirth and reaffirmation of the power of music. Over on a smaller stage, a DJ called Sam was celebrating its effect on her own life. Once homeless and then living in a hostel, she had signed up to the DJ workshops run by a volunteer health and wellbeing service called Turn the Tables. Sam had found her talent and here she was playing her first gig at probably Scotland's biggest and most cutting-edge dance event, a brilliant advert for music's ability to save lives. Other major music events are contributing to an Indian summer of festivals. Liam Gallagher and the Chemical Brothers top the bill at this weekend's Transmit Festival at Glasgow's Green and at the end of the month, Culture Club in Chic will be among the highlights of the Playground Festival at Rook and Glen, which runs from September 24th to 26th. As the music reminds us of the importance of joining together to celebrate shared feelings and experiences in enriching our lives and maintaining our mental health, it's also a salient reminder that it's not just our economy that needs protecting in times of crisis. There were times during lockdown and the initial easing of restrictions that the contribution of the hospitality, hospitality industry was underestimated. It not only generates the cash needed to power the economic recovery, although it certainly does that in spades, but it also protects and improves one of the nation's most vital attributes, its mental health, and that's something you can't really put a price on. That article was by Richard Walker. From the National, Wednesday the 8th of September 2021, from the news section, Why the National Insurance Increase Will Succeed at Creating Yet More Inequality, by Professor Richard Murphy. Rishi Sunak enjoyed himself yesterday. He took great pleasure telling anyone who might listen that he was imposing tax increases in Scotland without seeking the consent of the Scottish Government. Admittedly, he looked a little more uncomfortable trying to justify why this government was breaking yet another of its manifesto promises, in this case, not to increase tax. But whilst it was an interesting day in politics, the real question is whether Sunak needed to impose a national insurance increase anywhere in the UK, let alone Scotland. The obvious answer is that that he did not. It is indisputable that there are NHS and social care funding issues throughout the UK. However, while this may be true the Westminster government has borrowed £26 billion less than expected in the first four months of this financial year, given that the planned tax increases will raise only £12 billion a year, it is apparent that the government could already afford to cover the additional costs of the NHS out of existing budgets. There was no need for any tax increase now in that case. That makes it increase a straightforward contract. In addition, the claim made that this tax increase is needed to control the UK national debt is completely false. As a matter of fact, the whole cost of the UK government deficit is currently being funded by the Bank of England through its quantitative easing programme. Using that arrangement, the Bank of England is currently repurchasing all the debt that the government is supposedly creating to fund its deficits using newly created money that does not come from taxpayers. Well over £800 billion of UK government debt has been cancelled in this way to to date. None of the money created by the Bank of England to do this need ever be repaid or ever have any interest paid on it, and there has never been a hint that this process is inflationary. 
In that case, another £12 billion a year for the NHS could easily be found in this way. So, yet again, no new taxes were needed to pay for this. In that case, why did Rishi Sunak want to increase tax in just about the most unfair way that he could? National insurance is the tax that hits the lowest paid more than income tax does in many cases. What is more, it always demands less in real terms of the wealthy than it does of those with low pay. Sunak claimed he had no choice but to do this, but again, he was wrong. There were much better alternatives available. My suggestions for better tax increases all focus on taxing those with high pay and wealth more, because those groups have all done especially well from the economic support packages Westminster created during the Covid crisis. The value of their savings has, in particular, increased considerably over the last two years. For example, even if national insurance changes were essential, there were better ones to make. Those earning over £50,000 only pay national insurance at 2%. Those earning less than £50,000 pay 12%. Simply changing the rules so that everyone paid the same 12% national insurance rate could raise £14 billion a year in my estimation and not demand a penny more from a lower paid worker. That would have been socially just. Equalising the tax rates due in income and capital gains would also have worked. Capital gains are the profits people make when selling assets like shares and investments. They are usually taxed at half the rate of income at present. Charging those gains at income tax rates would have been another socially just thing to do and could have raised £9 billion. Charging an extra 15% tax on investment incomes above £5,000 a year because they are not subject to national insurance would also have been fair. That could have raised maybe £7 billion a year. And reducing the tax relief during the pension contributions of the wealthiest so that they only get the 20% tax relief that all those earning less than £50,000 a year enjoy could have saved maybe £10 billion a year and stopped the absurd situation where the savings of the wealthy are subsidised more than those of the low paid. There were, in other words, fair options available for delivering extra taxes if they were required, which I doubt. But they weren't chosen. Instead, the lowest paid are going to pay more taxes so that wealthy pensioners can pass on more of the value of the estates onto their children. And that is what this reform is really all about. There's not a hint of social justice in this, but as part of a Tory plan to increase inequality, this new tax will work, and that's exactly what I think it was really all about. And that article is by Professor Richard Murphy. Recorded from the National on the 9th of September 2021, from the Culture section, BBC's Director of News and Current Affairs to Step Down, by Angus Corrine. The BBC's Director of News and Current Affairs will leave the corporation next year, it has been announced. Fran Unsworth was appointed to her current role in January 2018 and has worked at the BBC for more than four decades, having started her career in 1980 with BBC Radio 1's Newsbeat. She said in a statement, After more than 40 years with the BBC, I have decided that the the time is right for me to hand on the job of leading the world's best news organisation. I have had a ringside seat at some momentous events, including the Falkland Wars, the Troubles in Northern Ireland, wars in the Middle East, the death of Princess Diana, 9-11 and countless general elections, 
it has been a privilege. The jobs I've done have not always been easy. Undoubtedly, some were more fun than others, but I am proud to have done all of them and to work for an organisation which has such a vital and precious role in the UK and around the world. The BBC is free of commercial and proprietal pressure. Our bosses are the audiences we serve. I'm honoured to have been a part of it. I leave BBC News in the hands of an incredibly strong team which is committed to remaining at the forefront of the world's journalism. Through them, the BBC will be as relevant as it has been for the last 100 years. I am proud to have served BBC News and our audiences. BBC Director General Tim Davey said Unsworth had, throughout her career, embodied the values of BBC News. She is a world-class journalist and is respected and admired by colleagues across the BBC, he commented. Fran has taken BBC News through one of the most testing periods in its history, providing a vital service during the COVID-19 pandemic when record audiences turned to BBC News. She has led BBC coverage during a period of momentous events at home and abroad, alongside leading a huge modernisation programme to reshape BBC News. Before this, as its director, she oversaw the biggest expansion of the World Service since the 1940s, which has proved a major boost to international coverage at a time of great international need. Fran has been a hugely valued member of the BBC's Executive Committee and the BBC Board. She will be greatly missed by everyone at the BBC. Her previous roles have included BBC Home News Editor, Head of Political Programmes and Head of News Gathering. She was the BBC's Acting Director of News and Current Affairs for periods between 2012 and 2013 and became the first female director of the BBC World Service Group in 2014, overseeing the biggest expansion of the World Services since the 1940s. Unsworth will leave at the end of January 2022, the corporation said. That article was by Angus Corrine. From the National, Thursday the 9th of September 2021, from the sports section, Cool, hard and mature, why Billy Gilmore is shining for Scotland and it's only going to get better? By Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. Few Scotland players have been adept in the dark arts of the defensive midfielder as Paul Hartley in recent years. His combative, creative and industrious displays in the middle of the park for the national team, not least in the famous Euro 2008 qualifying wins over France in Glasgow and in Paris, are remembered with great fondness by Tartan Army foot soldiers to this day. Yet, it took Hartley a long time until he was ready, both mentally and physically, to perform the pivotal role for his country. He was 28 when he won his first cap against Italy in the San Siro in 2005. The former Hibernian, St Johnson, Hearts, Celtic and Aberdeen enforcer squared up to Rina Gattuso, Patrick Vieira and Javier Mascherano in his time and still has the scars to prove it. So he appreciates from personal experience just how demanding the position can be in international football. He has then been both amazed and impressed by how well Billy Gilmore has, at the grand old age of 20, fared there since been promoted to Steve Clark's side. The Ayrshire lad picked up the Star of the Match award on his competitive debut against England at Wembley in Euro 2020 in June before a positive COVID-19 test ruled him out of the Croatia match. Gilmore was exceptional once again and Scotland recorded the 1-0 win over Austria in a Qatar 2022 qualifier in Vienna on Tuesday night that increased their chances of finishing second in Group F and progressing to the finals via the playoffs.
Billy looks at ease, said Hartley. He is really mature. It is as if he has played there for the last ten years. The 25 times capped Scotland internationalist expects a Chelsea midfielder who has moved to Norwich City on loan this season in order to gain experience to be a fixture on the national side for some time to come. He only anticipates him getting better in future, given how well he has done to date. Billy hasn't played a lot of games of senior football, never mind international football, he said, but he's got a great work ethic. He's a hardy little boy as well. He really puts himself about despite his size. He's only 5 foot 7 inch tall. He is just a super talented footballer. He has real composure. His teammates trust him with the ball. You can say that there's real trust there. He takes the ball well under pressure and in games like the one against Austria away the other night, you need to. Sometimes when you're up against it, you need to have a bit of calmness and that is what he has got got from me. He has a real coolness about his game. I don't think anyone faces him. He can handle playing at any level against any opponent, no matter who it is. He looks like he thrives in it, enjoys it. He will only improve as a result of being involved in all three games in the latest triple header. Scotland had big games, must-win games, against Moldova and Austria. We had come in for some criticism after Denmark and needed victories and points. But he's shown in both games. As I say, he thrives in that pleasure. Hartley, who spent two seasons at Parkhead towards the end of his playing days, believes the presence of Gilmore in the Scotland team has brought out the very best in Celtic captain Callum McGregor too. The two of them are very good together, he said. It is a nice balance. McGregor knows he can now get forward. He knows he has a bit of security behind him with Gilmore there. The two of them worked well against Austria. Then you have John McGinn in front of them. I think the midfield is the strongest area of our team now. There is huge excitement among Scotland supporters about what Gilmore, who only made his international debut in a friendly against the Netherlands in the summer, is capable of doing in future. Hartley has no concerns about their new hero being affected by the adulation. He has had a lot of hype surrounding him since he was about 15, he said. He has been the focus of a lot of attention since he went from Rangers to Chelsea. But you can now see why. He has justified the hype. We have seen what it is like for a young player over the years. They come into a team for a while and everybody raves about them. Then their form dips and they get a lot of criticism. But you can see with the way he conducts himself, on and off the pitch, that he can deal with whatever comes his way. He is a young lad who is going to be around for a very long time. Hartley took many years to finally realise his full potential, but he thinks that moving from Champions League winners Chelsea to Championship Champions Norwich for the season will enable Gilmore to develop his talents even further. When young players get to that age, they need to play men's football, he said. They need to be in a good environment. They can't be playing for the reserves or playing the five first team games a season. Billy will be in a team this season that isn't going to win every week. That is a different challenge for him and will be good for him. Norwich aren't going to be at the top end of the Premier League. Paul Hartley is hopeful that having Billy Gilmore will stop Scotland from sliding down the Group F table 
and keep their hopes of reaching their first World Cup since France 98 alive. And that article was by Matthew Lindsay. Recorded from the National on the 9th of September 2021. From the Culture section. Live music reminded me it's not just our economy that needs protecting in crisis. By Richard Walker. Each of us will have felt the loss of things we loved during a lockdown, which, at some points, felt would go on forever. For me, it was live music. Recordings are all very well, but for me, music is a primarily a communal experience, best enjoyed in a packed room field with people sharing their enjoyment. I don't think I'm alone. Since lockdown restrictions eased, I've noticed that music is playing a big role in bringing people back together in a way as reminding us all of the power it has to heal and inspire. I first noticed it in an outdoor bar during the Edinburgh Festival when a number of solo performers with only an acoustic guitar for accompaniment sparked mass sing-alongs from an audience who had only recently emerged from isolation to join together in a celebration of the popular song. There was a poignancy in what felt like a communal realisation that joining together is part of what makes us human and cutting ourselves off from each other even when, when essential for our health as it undoubtedly was when COVID began, spreading through our communities, has a high price tag attached. Joining in with an old Oasis songs isn't exactly an intellectual exercise, but watching the smile spread around the bar after such a long period of apartness made them almost profound. These feelings have only increased as more and more events welcome back audiences. I spent much of last weekend at Prestwick, which was hosting the return of the local music festival Prest Fest after Covid forced its cancellation last year. Almost every bar in town had a band playing and most were packed with customers who were clearly overjoyed to be out socialising, dancing and singing again. In towns all over Scotland, modern life had put the local sense of community under threat. So many of us had started to define ourselves by where we worked rather than where we lived. We travelled to big city offices and when we returned home we were too knackered to go out for the night or to socialise. During lockdown, we began to connect again with friends and neighbours in the same town. Now that lockdown has eased, we're more aware of what's going on in our own backyards. Before lockdown, many of Scotland's towns looked abandoned and run down. Shops were closing and in many cases, main streets lacked the vision to offer an alternative to shopping to attract visitors. Now cities are less attractive places to live. Shops are closing there too, but the experience of lockdown, cooped up with children in flats without gardens has encouraged many to consider alternatives. House prices are rising in rejuvenated towns, encouraged by home working, which makes commuting unnecessary. Local events like Prestfest are encouraging a reborn sense of community, with music serving as the glue which binds people together. In one bar, the crowd was bellowing out Johnny Cash, another country and pop hits. In another, an enthusiastic band had hit, had the audience dancing until midnight, with Meatloaf, ACDC, ABBA and Erasure. It was a fantastic night which encouraged a sense of well-being and togetherness after months which have proved tough going for many of us. The threat of Covid has not, of course, entirely disappeared. A further 5,810 cases were reported yesterday, after a run of even higher totals. There were 883 people in hospital with recently confirmed Covid, 82 of them in intensive care. So COVID hasn't been defeated yet. The threat of a circuit-breaking lockdown persists, particularly if the return of university students increases the number of cases. But there is a sense of the worst being over and attentions are focusing on the economic recovery. 
Those of us who support independence are looking forward to the prospect of a second referendum and the opportunity to put control over that recovery into the hands of a government which we elect ourselves. But let's not overlook the effects of lockdown on our mental health. We have been deprived of the company of our friends, families and work colleagues. We have been switching on our computers and staring into the void. Young people in particular have lost out on so many important rites of passage. Instead of hanging out with their mates, they've been forced to spend almost every waking minute with those who take care of them. There's a limit to how much fun that can be. There was an almost palpable sense of euphoria when one of the first major music festivals since the pandemic struck took place outside the Transport Museum on the banks of the River Clyde last weekend. The Riverside Festival is always a joyful experience, but this year's event reached new levels. The rain failed to dampen spirits as DJ after DJ, including Glasgow Pioneer Slam, pushed the dancers to ever greater heights of intensity. Everywhere you looked, people were having the time of their lives. Just months ago, it was hard to imagine ever being part of something so intoxicating ever again. It was almost as if raves had been a figment of the imagination, a glimpse of a world that had slipped from view. The Riverside Festival was a monumental rebirth and reaffirmation of the power of music. Over on a smaller stage, a DJ called Sam was celebrating its effect on her own life. Once homeless and then living in a hostel, she had signed up to the DJ workshops run by a volunteer health and well-being service called Turn the Tables. Sam had found her talent and here she was playing her first gig at probably Scotland's biggest and most cutting-edge dance event, a brilliant advert for music's ability to save lives. Other major music events are contributing to an Indian summer of festivals. Liam Gallagher and the Chemical Brothers top the bill at this weekend's Transmit Festival at Glasgow's Green and at the end of the month, Culture Club and Chic will be among the highlights of the Playground Festival at Rook and Glen, which runs from September 24th to 26th. As the music reminds us of the importance of joining together to celebrate shared feelings and experiences in enriching our lives and maintaining our mental health, it's also a salient reminder that it's not just our economy that needs protecting in times of crisis. There were times during lockdown and the initial easing of restrictions that the contribution of the hospitality, hospitality industry was underestimated. It not only generates the cash needed to power the economic recovery, although it certainly does that in spades, but it also protects and improves one of the nation's most vital attributes, its mental health, and that's something you can't really put a price on. That article was by Richard Walker. From the National, Thursday the 9th of September 2021, from the news section, Brexit-linked supply issues threaten UK's COVID recovery, Boris Johnson warned, by Laura Webster. The UK is set to see a sharp slowdown in its economic growth as mounting supply chain crisis and staff shortages, largely blamed on Brexit, threaten to derail Britain's recovery, according to a major business group. The British Chambers of Commerce, BCC, warned there is also a real danger the UK government's health and social care levy could further stifle the economic bounce back from the pandemic. It comes after the UK government announced a 1.25% national insurance tax hike to raise £12 billion to help fund England's NHS backlog and social care system. The BCC slashed its forecast for a third quarter growth to 2.8% from 3.5% previously, as it said the supply chain disruption and hiring difficulties are offsetting the boost from July's 
full lifting of coronavirus restrictions. It added growth, which stood at 4.8% in the second quarter, is predicted to ease back a further, to a further 1.6% between October and December. Official figures tomorrow are expected to show a further slowdown in growth over July, with most economies penciling in 0.5% expansion, down from 1% in June. The supply and lorry driver woes, as European workers choose to leave the UK after Brexit, have left supermarket shelves increasingly bare in recent weeks and are hitting sectors from hospitality to house building. The BCC said the lorry driver shortage, global supply issues and wider recruitment troubles are set to hamper the rebound and mean the economy will only return to its pre-pandemic level in the first quarter of 2022. Surin Thiru, Head of Economics at the BCC, said the group's latest forecast points to a loss of momentum in the coming months as staff shortages, supply chain disruption and rising cost pressures limit output from many sectors. He cautioned, a prolonged period of acute supply and staff shortages could derail the recovery by forcing firms into a more permanent reduction in their operating capacity, eroding their ability to fulfil orders and meet customer demand. He added, there is a real danger the national insurance increase announced this week could stifle the recovery. Any further tax changes could be very well prolong the economic damage from COVID. A spokesman for the UK government said most of the solutions to the HGV driver shortage are likely to be driven by industry, with progress already to be made in testing and hiring, and a big push towards improving pay, working conditions and diversity. It has launched measures to include streamlining the HGV licence process, but faces calls to do more, such as introducing a temporary visa for EU drivers. The BCC said that despite the 2021 economic rebound, business investment is expected to decline by 2.5% this year, which could be the weak point of the recovery because it undermines the UK's ability to raise productivity and increase our long-term growth prospects. It also echoes recent forecasts from the Bank of England that surging inflation is set to peak at 4% in the fourth quarter and said interest rates are likely to start rising at the end of 2022 with a second due a year later. And that piece was by Laura Webster. From the National, Thursday the 9th of September 2021 from the Politics section Lorna Slater condemns Scottish Tories' country bumpkin jibe by Angus Cochrane, multimedia journalist. A new Scottish Green Minister has expressed her dismay at a Tory MSP who made a country bumpkin jibe in Parliament. Circular Economy Minister Lorna Slater condemned Rachel Hamilton's childish playground antics. The Conservative politician made the comment during a Hollywood debate on the newly unveiled programme for government. As she raised doubts about the Scottish Government's rural strategy, she made a pointed remark about the new Green Ministers, Slater and Patrick Harvey. They have been accepted into Nicola Sturgeon's government as part of a groundbreaking cooperation deal, with Slater appointed Green Skills, Circular Economy and Biodiversity Minister. Harvey has been named Minister for Zero Carbon Buildings, active travel and tenant rights. Hamilton, 
speaking in Parliament on Wednesday, said, With the newly announced Minister for Zero Carbon Buildings, Active Travel and Tenant Rights, and the Minister for Green Skills, Circular Economy and Biodiversity taking up their positions, I have been left to wonder when the government will unveil the next Minister for Compost, Country Bumpkins and the Winter Solstice, adding to the burgeoning number of special advisors and civil servants paid for by the taxpayer. Fundamentally, the programme for government is designed to meet green demands and prop up numbers to push an agenda to break up Britain. In effect, it's a one-trick disaster duo. Slater later rebuked the Tory MSP on social media. She tweeted, Did anyone catch the exact wording of the insult that the Tory MSP threw across the chamber at me in this debate? It was something about country bumpkins and compost, but I didn't get it down fast enough. Very childish playground stuff. Under the cooperation agreement, Slater will be one of four ministers under Finance and Economy Secretary Kate Forbes. Harvey will be one of three ministers working under Shona Robison, the Social Justice and Housing Secretary. The Green Chiefs will also work with the Net Zero Energy and Transport Secretary, Michael Matheson. And that article is by Angus Cochrane. From the National, Thursday the 9th of September 2021, from the news section, Trident. CND warned SNP not to let Scotland get stuck with nuclear weapons. By Kathleen Nutt, Chief Political Reporter. The Scottish Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND, has warned the SNP that Scotland faces being stuck with Trident unless the party sets a fixed deadline post-independence to remove it. In a major intervention, the organisation have called for delegates at the party's conference this weekend to back a motion calling for the weapons system to be scrapped within three years of independence. The move follows the publication of a counter-proposal from other SNP members demanding that the party do not fix a timetable but leave an open deadline. But Scottish CND fear that if a three-year deadline is not fixed, a newly independent Scotland could end up indefinitely delaying Trident's removal post-independence amid negotiations with the UK government. Scottish CND welcomes the debate at the SNP conference on a clear timetable for removing nuclear weapons from Scotland. Our report, Disarming Trident, examines in detail the technical issues, said a statement released exclusively to the National. The UK government needs to know that Trident removal post-independence will not be a subject to the never-ending excuses for delaying and that they must make preparations well in advance. A three-year timetable is in practice likely to be given five years, including the period from a yes referendum vote. This gives them adequate time to prepare a new facility for storing what will be 240 nuclear warheads, currently based in Scotland, and to make provision for the removal of the Vanguard submarines. We fully expect that there will be a vigorous campaign in England, Wales and Northern Ireland to have these weapons decommissioned. The statement added, The new Scottish state must also be able to proceed with its plans for Faz Lane without years of delay, whether as a conventional naval base as the SSMP's policy or as a centre for the development of marine and renewable energy, or both. The Faz Lane and Coalport base covers a substantial area. 
There is a clear political majority in Scotland which supports an independent Scotland, ratifying the UN Treaty and the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And this means that Scotland will have international backing. Our neighbour, Ireland, has ratified the treaty. Ratifying the TPNW requires that member states who have nuclear weapons on their territory remove these as soon as possible and must agree a timetable with our other state parties. I'm sure that the proposals from SNP, CND will satisfy that requirement for an early removal. This will be an inspiration for campaigners throughout the world. The resolution, lodged by SNP, CND, states In line with the provisions of the TPNW, conference calls upon a future SNP government of an independent Scotland to remove nuclear weapons from Scotland within three years. Opposing this, the amendment put down by the parties Castle Douglas and Glencairn's Banshees reads Delete to remove nuclear weapons from Scotland within three years and replace with start to practical work to remove nuclear weapons from Scotland within three years. The debate is due to take place on Sunday, September the 12th at the SNP conference, due to be held online. The party has been working on a roadmap to remove nuclear warheads and submarines from the Clyde and drawing up defence diversification plans, which include using the Faslane NATO base as a headquarters for an independent Scotland's conventional military, in part to cushion the economic impact of Trident's withdrawal. Removing the weapons would pose a huge headache for the UK government. Alternative sites that have been suggested for the nuclear submarines before include Devonport in Plymouth and Milford Haven in Wales, but none is as well suited as Faslane with its rapid access directly into the Irish Sea and North Atlantic. Other options floated included asking France or the United States to take the weapons. A further option, which has been set out in Westminster government plans, is for the UK to lease Faslane from an independent Scotland. And that piece was an exclusive by Kathleen Nutt. And that was this week's The National Podcast, only recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.